Today I have the privilege of bringing the word to you. Uh, Brother Ben asked me to do that out of an abundance of prudence. He has placed himself on uh, quarantine for a few days. Uh, and uh, so he asked me if I would do this, and I was not only willing to, but actually very pleased and very honored to be here. So today I want to talk to you about sin is believing. Or what do you see? What do you see? Uh, what you see is not always what's there. What you see is not always the reality. So, I want to uh, start by reading Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 to 32. And it's a story you know very well. But uh, I want you to pay attention to the words. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. Next one, please. Next Hello? Okay, I'm going to... I'll do it from here. But I don't like my version that I have on this one. So could you do the next verse, please? Oh, it's behind me? Oh, I'm looking at the wrong screen. Okay, thank you. Well, now you know who's not here very often on Sundays. Huh? Okay, and when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now, when evening came, he was alone there. But the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Now in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them, walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a ghost! And they cried out for fear. And I'm going to stop it here. Um, this is a remarkable event. It has, this story has miracles galore. Uh, we have the Lord Jesus walking on the water and, and the Sea of Galilee in the middle of the storm. And we have the twin miracles that followed this, which I'm not going to read, of, of uh, Peter walking on the water also. Peter didn't sink immediately. He walked on the water to go to the Lord Jesus. And not only did he walk on the water, he sank. And he was rescued by the Lord. And then there's the third miracle. As soon as the Lord got on the boat with the disciples, the storm ceased. So it's a multi-miracle story. But in our fascination with Jesus' miracle working power, sometimes we miss an even better story that is behind this story. And um, I, want to, I want to go back a little bit to see this other teaching because immediately before this story took place immediately before the lord had worked an even greater miracle if you can measure miracles i don't know how you measure a miracle uh it's, all miracles are greatest <laughs> you know you cannot have we cannot have a miracle ourselves uh we cannot do a miracle so a small miracle or a big miracle how how do you determine which is which. But this one is more impressive, maybe even. And these are the events that took place before. And that's in Matthew chapter 14, verses 13 and forward. So if we go there. Now, let's go to uh, Matthew 14, verse 13 
to 21. I told him I was going to play with him. Yeah. I, I'm bad at this. I'm not used to, to working with the, with the uh, screens and so on. So We got it? Okay. <clears throat> All right, let's go to uh, Matthew uh, 14 and verse 13. It says, Now then, when Jesus heard it, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desert place apart. And when the multitudes heard that, they followed him on foot from the cities. And he came forth and saw a great multitude, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. And when the evening was come, the disciples came to him, saying, The place is desert, and the time is already past. Send the multitudes away that they may go into the villages and buy themselves food. As if. Okay. But Jesus said unto them, they have no need to go away. Give you to them to eat. And they said to him, we only have here but five loaves and two fishes. And he said, bring them to me. And he commanded multitudes to sit down on the grass. And he took the five loaves and the two fish. And looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke the bread and gave to the, the loaves to the disciples and the disciples to the multitudes. And they all ate and were filled. And they took up that which remained over the, of the broken pieces, twelve baskets full. And they that ate were about five thousand men, besides women and children. Okay. Sometimes we miss... One of the really interesting questions in this miracle. Um, how many people were there? It says 5,000 men without counting the women and children. So if we figure that every man had a woman or one woman per man, that's 10,000 right there. And we have uh, two kids per couple, you know, the average American family in the times of Jesus. And so we have 20,000 people. 20,000 people. That he feeds. And now what happens? Uh, did Jesus miscalculate? He couldn't, he couldn't multiply five loaves and two fish to feed 20,000 people. But he couldn't figure out just how much to multiply. Is that true? Because he has leftovers. If I were doing a miracle like that, I would have everybody have exactly what he's going to eat. And there would be no leftovers, no need to clean up. But Jesus didn't do that. Now, I want, I want you to understand something. Uh, if he could multiply the loaves and the fish, he could also calculate just how much he was going to need. So he needed 12 baskets of leftovers. That's why there were 12 baskets of leftovers. Now, why did he need 12 baskets of leftovers? And that is the question. That is what links... This miracle with the one that comes afterwards in the middle of the sea. It's, at least I think it's a wonderful idea. I don't know. But um, he had a purpose. Now, how many people were working with him? How many people were helping him? I, it, it, in this uh, telling of the gospel, it calls him the disciples. Could have been 200. But we know it's 12. Why do we know it's 12? Well, because Mark, in Mark 6.30, and also in the Gospel of Luke, but we're only going to go to Mark 6.30, 
It tells us that. Mark 6.30. Is it behind me now? Okay. It says, Then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. And then it goes on and on and on for many more uh, verses. But listen to it. It's the apostles. How many apostles are there? Twelve. Well, at least one person knew. Okay, 12 apostles. Now, if we continue reading this, we know that this is the beginning of the story in Mark of the multiplication of the bread and the fish that fed 5,000 men plus. So we know that in what we just read, we're talking about 12 apostles that are helping the Lord. Guess how many baskets there were of leftovers? Well, you don't have to guess because I just read it. Twelve. Y'all don't talk back, do you? Okay. Okay. Well, there were, there were twelve. You, you're welcome to talk back. Especially if you like, if, you, if you're going to say something nice. But anyway, there were twelve baskets that were left over. And I started thinking about this. And I think that Jesus was giving the apostles a message. And the message was this. I am more than enough. I am sufficient to fill every need and more. So he gave. Yeah. Yes, he is. Yes, he is. So he gave them each a basket. And then he said, pick up the leftovers. And they picked up the leftovers, and every one of them had a basket full of leftovers. The message for them was that. I am sufficient for your needs. I am more than sufficient for your needs. Because he was feeding the multitudes. He had healed their sick, and he was telling the multitudes, I am enough to fill your needs. But the multitudes didn't know if there was any leftover. Well, they had a little bit here, a little bit there. They didn't pay attention to it. But the disciples had to pay attention to it. The disciples had to because he told them, go pick up the leftovers. And they all come back with these. And I, and I don't think they had little baskets, you know, like little flower baskets. I think they had big baskets. And these baskets were filled to the top with leftovers. That was the message. And that's the message for us too. Because if it wasn't a message for us, it wouldn't be in the Gospels. There's not a single word in the Scripture that is wasted. And there's not a single word that should have been in the Scripture that isn't there. Everything in the Scripture is what we need to know the Lord and to follow the Lord and to be blessed by the Lord. So he's telling us, I'm more than enough to fill all of your needs, every single one of them. He also tells us that he is the bread of life. And and interestingly enough, uh, in John um, chapter 6, verses 12 and 13, John specifies that there were... The 12 baskets were filled with the pieces of bread. It doesn't say anything about the fish. But uh, there were 12 12, uh, uh, baskets of bread. Because Jesus is the bread of life. He's saying, I am the bread of life. I'm more than enough for your needs. That's the message that the 12 apostles came, uh, came out of the meeting with. That's what he's telling them. Then he does something funny. Something strange. It says, um, in, let's go back to Matthew 14, 22. Matthew 14, 22. And you tell me if it appears in the back. 
Oh, yeah. Okay, there it is. Immediately. Now, there is no time lapse between... You know, the, the Gospels are not always continuous time-wise. They're stories. Sometimes they're disconnected stories. But not here. Here, these two stories are tied together by the word immediately. So, if we go back a little bit in the story of the, uh, of the fish and the loaves and all that, we see that it's getting to be dark. It's, the sun is setting. Darkness is coming upon the earth. Under those conditions, here you have these 12 guys, each carrying a basket with several, I don't know, let's say 50 pounds of bread. Lord, what do we do? He says, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat. And that word in Greek, which is what really matters, made, is a word that indicates he forced them to. He convinced them to. He basically pushed them. It doesn't say he pushed them, but I'm, I'm saying it. Okay? He pushed them into the boat. And I never had thought about the baskets. So what happened to the baskets? Most likely, they said, okay, he's going to feed people on the other side of the lake. And they put the baskets in the boat with them. That, that, that would be the logical thing to to think. So they have the, the visual and substantial and material evidence of the sufficiency and over-sufficiency of the Lord sitting there between their legs as they get in the boat. And they start rowing. And what does Jesus do? He goes back. He blesses the crowd. He sends them home. And then he goes and prays. Goes up on the mountain and prays. Meanwhile, and not by chance. Meanwhile, the um, sea starts getting bad. Um, five years ago, my wife and I had the privilege of going to Israel on a trip, on a very nice trip. And one of the things we were going to do, like many tourists do, was to get on a tourist boat, which I guarantee you is much larger than the boat that they were on. And we were going to go through the Sea of Galilee, and we were going to cross to the other side and then come back, something nice. When we got there, the captain of the boat said, I'm sorry, the wind's been blowing all night, and the lake isn't safe. So all we're going to do is go around for one hour. And we did, and we sang uh, uh, Christian songs. It was a Christian group. We sang songs, and we praised the Lord. But we couldn't go to the other side. Now, this is a boat that nobody was rowing that boat. It had an engine. Go figure. And it was big. It had like 40 people in it and still had room for another 40. And they would not dare go with us across the lake. Because in the Lake of Galilee, when the wind comes down from the mountains of Syria, from the Golan Heights, which are not the mountains of Syria anymore, thank God. They're the mountains of northeast Israel. Okay? When the wind comes down from the Golan Heights, the sea really turns up into a boiling cauldron of waves and big waves and, and so on. Now you have these 12 guys rowing a boat. They're rowing. They probably got on the, on the boat around 6 p.m., 7 p.m. maybe. And it says here that the wind was contrary. So it's blowing against where they want to go. And that the waves were big. And that they are, it doesn't say so, but I say so. They're tired of rowing. Because in the fourth watch of the night, 
The fourth watch of the night, to put it in modern terms, is 3 a.m. They got in the boat at, say, 6 a.m. Now it's 3 a.m. They've been on the boat for, what is that, nine hours? Nine hours rowing against big waves, having to throw the water that gets in the boat. Those are open boats. Throwing out the water back, back into the lake so they don't sink. Meanwhile, the 12 baskets of bread are useless now. They're all wet. I'm sure it was raining. It was a storm. The baskets are wet and their spirits are wet. And the baskets are good for nothing anymore. The bread has turned into mush. It's only good to throw to the fish. And their faith has also turned to mush. And a lot of times that happens to us. A lot of times. Now these were really brave men. Several of them were fishermen. They had been through storms before. Another one was a guerrilla fighter, remember? Simon the Zealot. Okay? I don't think he was scared of things. And um, the others are different places, but just following Jesus in that time and place means that they were brave people. They were strong people. They were not afraid of much at all. They have seen Jesus' sufficiency just a few hours before. But circumstances have changed. And now they're scared. And um, Jesus had a purpose for all this. The storm didn't happen. It just didn't happen. Uh, the miracle of the multiplication didn't happen just because. The uh, leftover baskets, one per apostle, didn't just happen. You know, things don't happen to Jesus. Jesus happens to people. Jesus happens to circumstances. And Jesus happens to things. And when you are in the middle of a circumstance in your life that has you unsettled, remember that circumstance is not happening to you. Jesus is happening into that circumstance. He has a purpose for it. He's permitting it into your life. You're his, you're his son. You're his daughter. He loves you. He loves you enough that he gave his life for you on the cross. So why is he allowing me to go through this suffering? Why is he allowing me to go through this anguish? Why is he so bad, we say sometimes. Sometimes we doubt him. Sometimes we're on the, on the boat and we said, what I thought was leftovers that we were going to give to the poor on the other side of the lake, it's now just fit to be thrown out. I was wrong. I, he didn't really love me that much. He, he really doesn't care for me that much. He wouldn't have allowed this darling person that I love to die with COVID. Sometimes we're worse than the disciples. Fortunately, sometimes they're worse than we are. Okay? And, and the Lord still loves us all. But um, remember, Jesus is the driver, not the driven. And here I'm talking about a motor, not about a car. The driver is what puts the power into whatever the motor is driving. Jesus is the driver. Circumstances, people, lives are 
the driven, he happens to us. And when he happens to us, good things happen to us because he's all good. Because he has God. Because he has love personified. Because he has God made flesh to pay for our sins. He is good and he loves us. So he makes them row. He makes us row sometimes into a storm. And then, and then he appears to us. And they're rowing. And they're tired. I can imagine they're Strong hands were probably bleeding by then from rowing for nine hours. And they were in the dark. They couldn't tell how much progress, if any, they were making. You know, there's a, there's a study that was done by the Navy with the, with the, uh, the um, Navy SEALs. And they put guys that are strong and well-trained and everything in a, in a pool... And they tell them, okay, you have to, to tread water until you drown, basically. And then they time them, see how long they can, they can last before they have to actually rescue them. They will not come out. You know, a seal will not come out until he's told to come out, even if it drowns. They're trained. So they did it in several different circumstances. With a, a large group of guys, with a clock in front, and they lasted X hours. Then they take the clock out, so they don't know how much time has passed. And they last substantially less, because they don't know. They cannot time themselves. They, can, they don't know. Then they take the guys away, and they just leave one. And he lasts even less, because he's not deriving any, any support from his buddies around him. Then they turn off the light, and... Their endurance goes way down because they have no idea what's going on. Well, it's not by chance that the Lord sent the 12 disciples at night into a storm. They didn't know what was going on. They're, they went down quickly in their faith and in their trust in the Lord. So he put them in a, in a totally impossible situation. We don't know where we are. We don't know if we're... A, a mile away from shore or if we're still 15 miles away from shore that we don't know all we know is that this thing is, is about to sink and we are going to drown and all of a sudden Jesus comes walking on the water and they see the Lord which is interesting because this is in the middle of the night in the middle of a storm I don't know if they saw him through lightning or just there was this Miraculous light shining on the Lord. But they see the Lord. What do they say? It's a ghost. And let me tell you this. I, I looked it up in the Greek. And the word in Greek for that ghost only appears in the New Testament two times. One in Matthew's relation of this event. And two in Mark's relation of this event. And the word is phantasma. And if you know Spanish, you know that fantasma is a ghost risen up from the grave. It's not the spirit. It's not like the spirit of God. Uh, when the, when the uh, New Testament in Greek refers to the spirit of God, to the Holy Spirit, for example, we say the Holy Ghost. It's a Holy Spirit, really. 
Ghost is an old English word that has no place in the Bible, really. It shouldn't be there for us because we don't speak old English, okay? Some of us hardly speak English. But anyway, <laughs> but, um, anyway uh, the word that is used in, in the Bible for the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit, is a word that means spirit, neuma. But in this case, it uses the word phantasma. Phantasma means literally a soul that has risen from the grave and comes to scare you. Okay? That's a phantasma. Same thing in Spanish and in Greek. Phantasma. And that's the word that they use. It's a phantasma. Why? Because we're ready to drown. So here they come to bring us down into the deep with them. They were so scared that they saw God walking on the water. And in their minds, they saw death walking on the water. That's terrible. And it happens to us all the time. All the time. The Lord can put us in the middle of a storm. And then he comes walking on the water to us. And all we can see is the storm. And all we can see is the trouble. All we can see is the problem. All we can see is the worst possible outcome. That's what our mind goes to. Because that's our flesh. And remember one thing. The spirit and the flesh. They don't like each other much. They want different things. And part of what the flesh wants is fear. That's why people like to go on, a, on these rides where they, you feel like you're about to get thrown out of the, of the car at any second. And people throng to these things because our flesh likes to be scared. I don't know why, but we do. We like to be scared. The Spirit wants peace. The Spirit wants God. But sometimes and very often we have the Spirit and the flesh just fighting. And when we are in the midst of a trial, our flesh is going to see ghosts. And is going to try to ignore the presence of God in our lives. So, what the Lord is doing in our lives today is he is walking on the water for us. We have COVID. We have death. We have sickness. We have a government that is anti-Christian. We have a government that was voted in, supposedly, by a majority of the people. And who offends? They offend God. They promote things that are ungodly. Abortion. They want to shackle the Christians and others, maybe. But certainly the Christians, they, they would like to make us shut up. And that creates fear. And fear creates anger. And we're not supposed to be angry. Because there's a God walking on the water for us. There are things that have to happen that, will, that God will use for the, for the goodness. How did 
the church get out of Jerusalem? If they hadn't been persecuted, if they hadn't been persecuted, who knows, maybe the Christian church would just be a little sect in Jerusalem that we would have read about it in our anthropology books. I don't know. But they had to get out. And the faith started going out. How did the faith get multiplied multiple times by the persecution of the Roman government? How did the faith get stronger and stronger and stronger in many places when persecution came against it? So whether we like it or not, and I know we don't like it, we don't like to be at the receiving end of persecution. Although, unfortunately, many Christians have been on the given end of persecution also. That's for another day. Okay? But uh, something good is about to happen. Something good is about to take place. The Lord is stirring us up. The Lord is saying to us, you've been too comfortable for too long. I want more from you. The Lord is saying, you have been happy to go to your church and to praise me and to love me. And that's good. We're supposed to go to church and praise the Lord and love him and enjoy it. But you've done that and you've only done that. You haven't gone to those who don't know me. You haven't gone to those who need badly a word of encouragement or a word of correction given in love. The Bible says that we are supposed to correct in love, right? Sometimes we don't want to do that because it feels better to correct in anger. Yeah, thank you. (laughs) I have a guy in my church and... um, well, in the church that I preach in, it's not mine, okay? And he, he knows when I do that, he goes, amen! <laughs> and if nobody says amen, I just look at him and he gives me an amen. So I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to invest you with that job, okay, brother? <laughs> anyway, we were saying, and in their fear, they saw God. And they interpreted that as death which it was not. So don't let your fears let you see death instead of life. Don't let your fears let you see defeat instead of victory. Sometimes we want victory without work. We want the end result without the middle work. We have to do it that way, the way that God does things. So my question for you is, what do you fear today? What is your fear today? COVID? I guess we all share that. Death? Maybe you have somebody that is possibly on the verge of death with COVID or cancer or any number of other things that can happen. Do you fear that sin that you have no power over? Is there a sin in your life that overpowers you? A secret sin, perhaps? You know, sometimes we're quick to point out the sins that are visible. You know, that guy is a drunk. Okay. Well, that guy beats up his wife. Uh, But what about the sins that take place at 2 in the morning in front of a TV screen? 
What about the sins that take place on the inside of your head? The Lord says, if, if you see, if you look at a woman with lustful eyes, you already committed adultery. If you, if you wish you had killed that guy, if I wish I could kill that fellow, you already killed him in front of God. How many of those sins do we have that we cannot control and that we fear that? I am afraid of this sin because this sin controls me. What about being afraid to forgive? Well, if I forgive that, you know what they did to me when I was a kid? You know what she, that woman did to me before she walked away with all my money? If you're afraid to forgive, you need to do something about it. We're going to talk about that in a minute. How about being afraid of asking for forgiveness? Wow. If I go and I talk to that fellow and ask for forgiveness, he's going to reject me. He's going to cuss me out. Or he's going to forgive me and feel superior to me. Or I'm going to feel inferior to him, even if he doesn't feel superior to me. So I don't go and do what I should have done. To ask, I ask forgiveness. What about being afraid of getting too close to Jesus? Are you, have you ever been afraid of being too close to Jesus? I won't measure up to his standards. I've been told that as a pastor. I've been told that by several people. Over the years. Well, I'm not ready to go to the Lord just yet. Because I don't think that I can cut it. I don't think that I can behave in the way that I should as a Christian. Well, that's, that can be a real fear. But you cannot get dominated by fear. Not like that. Are you afraid of what people will say? Is that why you don't say anything when you should? Is that why you put up with certain things in your family or certain things in your workplace or in your school? Because you know that if you open your mouth that you will be criticized, rejected, maybe subjected to some degree of persecution. Are you afraid of being rejected? Are you afraid of just being told, I don't like you anymore? You know, one of the things that's really interesting, I, I, don't, I don't do Facebook much at all, really. But one of the things I hear about Facebook is that how people like to have likes. And they will do anything and say anything to keep people from, what do you call it, unliking, disliking? What is the proper verb in Facebook? Huh? Unliking. Okay. I don't want to get unlikened. By whom? Well, I don't know, but he lives in Calcutta. But, uh, yeah. I, I don't want to be unliked by him. I'll never know him. I don't know him. I don't know what he thinks. I don't know who he is. But I don't want him to, I don't want him to unlike me. Fear of not being liked. So what are you afraid of today? What am I afraid of today? So, what I would like to do is let's stand up and let's bring our fears to the Lord.
Let's tell the Lord, Lord, I am afraid. Let's say that out loud. I know everybody may not be afraid, but I think enough of us are that we can say that to the Lord. Lord, say it with me. Come on. Lord, I am afraid. I am afraid of things, of circumstances. I am afraid of not really knowing you. That's a good fear to have. Let's each of us go personally before the Lord. I'm going to pray something, but uh, you, you do your own praying. You do your own communication with the Lord. But first of all, Lord, I want to make sure that my relationship with you is right and proper and intimate and real. Lord, this is a good fear to have, a fear of being deceived. I want to know that I am truly yours. So I come before you this morning to ask you, Lord, touch my soul, touch my spirit. Lord, I want to be yours and I commit myself once more to you. I thank you, Lord that you have given me eternal life through your death on the cross where you paid for my sins. And I accept that. I accept your sacrifice for me and I take it. I receive it. And I ask you, Lord, let me always walk with you. I don't want to ever depart from you. Don't let me, Lord. I want you. And Lord, I bring to you all kinds of things that provoke fear in me and make me miss you so many times. I see you and I think I'm seeing something else. I see you and I see a threat. I see an opportunity that you put in front of me and all I can focus on is the difficulties. And I'm afraid. I'm afraid of death. I'm afraid of sickness. I'm afraid of rejection afraid of not fitting I'm afraid of what the world can do to me Lord I want more from you I want to be closer to you Lord I put my fears at your feet tonight this morning I put my fears at your feet And I ask you, Lord, please take them away from me and fill me with trust in you. Not just faith, but trust. I want to trust you. I want to walk in trust. I want to walk in confidence. I want to walk in faith in the Son of God, in you, Lord. And I thank you. Thank you, Lord, because you always hear the prayer of those who seek you from their heart. Thank you, Lord, because you are going to start doing things in me to banish fear from me. You're now, Lord, starting to lift me up. You're starting to get in my boat in the middle of the storm to 
calm the storm, but mainly to calm my heart that has been anguished. I thank you. Let's thank the Lord. Let's give him a big, a big clap offering. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, because you are taking fears out of my heart. Bless your holy name, Lord Jesus. Amen and amen. And thank you again for being here today. And we are done. So go home without fears and serve the Lord with all your heart. Amen.